0: Welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is on antiplatelet therapy. Now, our previous episode we went in depth about anticoagulants. And so we talked about how in different steps of our clotting cascade we can decrease kind of the rate we can we can specifically inhibit steps of the clotting cascade to decrease that production of that fibrin mesh, of course, which fits over our platelet plug. Now, one of the issues with the clotting cascade is that does not directly inhibit platelet adhesion, signaling, and then forming that platelet plug. And so there's a lot of clinical situations where we want to stop platelet aggregation from occurring. We can look at myocardial ischemia. We don't want to create further platelet adhesion and aggregation especially when we have a situation where we have like unstable angina. And so we're in a situation where we want to get as much perfusion as possible to the heart. We could be looking at a situation where we have peripheral artery disease. We may have a patient who's had a previous ischemic stroke. And so we're trying to decrease that potential For a stroke, we could have a person with like a TIA, so like a transient ischemic attack. And so they might have carotid artery disease. And again, we want to decrease any kind of potential platelet adhesion there and and that aggregation, which would decrease flow, right? So we have a lot of situations where it's not that we necessarily want a blood thinner. What we're looking more specifically is trying to keep our platelets from adhering. And so that's something very common. You're going to see, let's say, you have a patient with a coronary stent. They come out of the cath lab. We're going to typically be on something called dual antiplatelet therapy to decrease that platelet aggregation. Now, thinking about platelets, platelets typically have a lifespan of 7 to 10 days. And so most of the effects we have, the antiplatelet effects we have, typically last the lifespan of the platelet. Many of these are non-reversible. So that's one of our challenges with antiplatelet therapy is that it's not easily instantaneously reversed per se. If we were to have, say, a patient falls, hits their head, they have a head bleed, we can't instantly reverse it per se. We have some things we can do to help with platelet dysfunction. And of course, we can administer platelets. But that's something to always think about with antiplatelet therapy. Now, with the way in which antiplatelet therapy works, we can really think of it in terms of three types of mechanisms, or we can think of it in terms of three ways they can act. And I think it's worthwhile to listen to the previous episode on platelet adhesion, signaling, and aggregation, because some of this will make more sense. There's a little more background information there. So one of the first ways that we can inhibit platelets is through outside the platelet. So we're going to think of it as things that happen outside of our platelet. And so this is something that interacts with our platelet membrane. And so these are special receptors we have on our platelet. And so these are going to be things such as catecholamines, collagen, thrombin, prostacyclin. All of these originate outside our platelet. They can be released or interact with the outside membrane of our platelet to then create that adhesion. We can have signaling there, and, of course, we can have aggregation. So if we can inhibit a step here, we can then hopefully slow down that platelet plug formation. A second way we can do it is that we can work. We have things that are within our platelet that then interact with our platelet membrane. And so these are really specific membrane receptors, like ADP. Uh, we have prost- we have um, prostaglandin D2. We have prostaglandin E2. We have serotonin. Now a third way we can then affect our platelets is going to be inhibiting specific aspects. So we're going to be inhibiting things that specifically are generated in the platelet and act within the platelet. So these are going to be things like prostaglandin endoperoxides and thromboxane A2 specifically. Now we have these three different ways that we can affect our platelets. So let's talk about some of our more common antiplatelet medications that you're going to see in critical care. This is in no way exhaustive, but it's something that's worth touching a few of our really common antiplatelet therapies. First, we'll talk about aspirin. So aspirin specifically works on thromboxane A2. So this causes the platelets to change shape and release their granules and aggregate. So if we can inhibit this thromboxane A2, it has a pretty significant antiplatelet effect. Now, the way it works is it inhibits the synthesis of thromboxane A2 by irreversible acetylation of cyclooxygenase, which remember cyclooxygenase, if we see that ending, we're going to be thinking enzyme. Now, One of our challenges with aspirin specifically is not everyone necessarily has the exact same response to aspirin. And so there are some genetic variations of people in terms of how they metabolize aspirin that can make it challenging to get the right therapeutic effect. So there is that one kind of consideration with aspirin. Another discussion with aspirin typically is that for some People, it's generally not recommended as a prophylactic treatment. Looking at some of the data out there, you're seeing this less often recommended prophylactically for people with no health history of any kind of thromboembolism. Now, what's interesting too with with aspirin is that it actually, we can look at other NSAIDs specifically, and they can kind of have a similar effect on our platelets. It may not be as significant as aspirin, but we can have some antiplatelet effect working on this mechanism from other NSAIDs. So something to keep in mind that if you're on a lot of NSAIDs, you could potentially have some antiplatelet effect working on this mechanism. Aspirin is typically part of dual antiplatelet therapy, specifically for people with those coronary stents. Often you're going to see aspirin as one of our antiplatelet medications that will also be combined with typically Plavix, which we're going to be talking about here in just a moment. The next common type of medication we kind of just alluded to are, are they're specifically called ADP P2Y12 inhibitors. So these are receptors that are on that membrane of the platelet. And that is going to be a critical aspect. If we can inhibit specifically that step, that process, we can decrease platelet aggregation. And so you're going to commonly see these referred to as P2Y12 inhibitors. You're going to see medications like clopidogrel or plavix, ticlid, ticlodipine Some of our really common medications you're going to see, these are often combined with aspirin for our dual antiplatelet therapy. One of the benefits of these medications is that they do not inhibit prostaglandin synthesis or metabolism. And so that's one of our kind of side effects of aspirin specifically is that, remember, our prostaglandins have pretty wide-ranging critical effects. And so by inhibiting that, that's something we're not really, we're going to have some side effects from that. And so that's one of the advantages of our P2Y12 inhibitors. And so one of our most common ones we're going to see is Clopidogrel or plavix. This tends to be preferred over ticlid. One of our main indications is unstable angina. We're going to look at it specifically in STEMIs, non-STEMIs, peripheral artery disease. We have those stents. That's one of the parts of our dual antiplatelet therapy. When we look at it, one of the preferences for this is the specific outcomes versus the risk of bleeding tends to be a little bit better than ticlid, which is one of the reasons you're going to see it more often. Now, the reason I'm going to focus in on Plavix and dosing is this is where the most common you're going to see. So this is often done with a loading dose of 300 milligrams. That's oral. And then that's followed up with about 75 milligrams daily. This medication within about five hours we're going to have 80% platelet inhibition, which is really pretty incredible. The one issue we have to think about is that this is dependent upon that cytochrome P450 metabolism. And so because of that, if we have medications that inhibit that enzyme or use that enzyme, we can, of course, have some concerns for proper dosing. And so that's something where one of our medications that can commonly interact with it's omeprazole. Now, the platelet inhibition here with Plavix, we can't reverse. So remember, our platelet life is 7 to 10 days. One of the common phrases you're going to see in critical care is a Plavix washout. What they're essentially meaning is a lot of times we might have a patient who, they went to cath lab, they got a coronary stent. They, of course, have Plavix and aspirin on board. Those platelets are inhibited for the life of those platelets. But let's say that they decide, no, we really want to go to surgery and do you know, a double bypass. Well, when we go into surgery, we have a bleeding risk. And so sometimes we might wait if the patient is stable and allow those platelets to regenerate. And so that's something you'll see fairly often is that concept of a Plavix washout. There are a couple others in this category, but one that you can think of is Effient. is another one. This is an interesting P2Y12 inhibitor. The studies out there say it has a really phenomenal outcomes in from our cardiovascular indications, but the concern is it has a higher bleeding risk. And so that's always something that we're looking at with these medications. Now, I think it's worth kind of talking briefly here about Reversibility. What do we do when we have a situation where we have sudden hemorrhage, we have a head bleed, we have a situation where a patient um, has to go to emergency surgery or there's a trauma? Can we reverse these antiplatelet effects? And in many ways, yes and no. We can, first and foremost, administer platelets to the patient that are then active functional platelets with no platelet dysfunction. Something we can also do in more minor situations is we can administer desmopressin or DDAVP. This can help reduce some of our platelet dysfunction. And so for many of these medications, an early treatment could be the administration of DDAVP. And if we're in more severe bleeding, we're going to be talking about transfusing platelets, one to two units of platelets, every medication and clinical situation is a little bit different. And so that's the good and the bad about antiplatelet therapy is that we can always just administer more platelets, but it's also a challenge because the platelets that we do have typically are going to be affected for the life of the platelet. Now, another medication in this class of a P2Y12 inhibitor, we're going to look at Ticagrelor. This is also known as Brillanta. So working similarly, so another ADP inhibitor. And This medication you're going to see, again, somewhat commonly in critical care, we're looking at some of the same indications and reasons we might use it. Now, there are some adverse effects that may be really significant to note with this medication. So sometimes when the providers may be looking at looking Burlanta versus Plavix, often we're looking specifically at this adverse effect list in the patient's history to try to determine which one we're going to use. It is important, though, to remember with these, because of the hepatic metabolism, looking at somebody's current liver status, looking at their liver enzymes are really important, but also looking at other medications they're taking. Remember, again, that cytochrome P450 system, if we're taking medications that are also using or inhibiting that enzyme, we can have significant effects on how effective these medications are. And so that's something that we're always going to be thinking about. Another medication that's sort of in this list is a bit different, an IV medication called Kangrelor. This is one of our really unique IV medications. And what's unique about this one is that it's an IV infusion antiplatelet. But what's unique about it is that it's a medication that as it's being infused, it provides platelet inhibition. But as the infusion stops, it stops the platelet inhibition. So it's reversible. So this is a medication that you're starting to see more often. Sometimes you'll see patients on an infusion Coming out of cath lab on this medication, I've seen this a bit more commonly in the cardiovascular ICU that I work at, and that's one of the great advantages of it is that it is not permanent effect on our platelets. Now, we have a few other types of medications that we can also do with antiplatelet therapy, but I think I don't want to get too in the weeds in this episode today. I wanted to really focus in on the primary medications that we're going to see with antiplatelet therapy in future episodes, I think I may focus in specifically on a couple of these, doing some comparisons, so maybe we can compare Brilanta to Plavix at a little more depth, but I think the general thing to remember with these medications is to understand that they're going to be effective for the life of your platelet, and that Looking at your clinical situation can determine if we need to wait for a washout, if we do desmopressin, if we have to add platelets for our patient, if we're in one of those critical situations. Well, this kind of concludes our blood product, where we kind of went through all of our blood products. We talked about mass transfusion. We talked about coagulation. We talked about anticoagulants. This was our antiplatelet therapy episode. And now what I'm going to move into is we're going to start moving through electrolytes. And so the first episode we're going to cover is sodium. I think electrolytes are just so critical to understand, regardless of what type of unit you work in in critical care, it's helpful for you to understand the mechanisms of action and how these electrolytes work, why we may or may not want Normal levels, the concerns when they're high, the concerns when they're low. And then after our electrolytes, we're going to keep working through a complete metabolic panel to understand what these labs mean. I think as you start a career in critical care or you're looking to get more serious in critical care, Looking at those daily labs, being able to understand the clinical situation and understand the labs is really a big step to take when you want to provide that next level of critical care. As always, thanks for listening. I look forward to the next episode on sodium.